Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour we'll hear about a new survey on abortion in Illinois, how likely voters feel about the issue. More people are coming to the Metro East for the procedure, as additional states have restricted or banned abortion. We'll have a report. We'll also take a look at the race for the U.S. Senate in Illinois. A Lincoln biographer looks at the 16th president's decisions and how he placed democracy over politics. And we'll remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. It happened 60 years ago this month. Also, a CEO talks about diversity in executive positions. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. First up this week, abortion providers in the Metro East for years have been absorbing patients from states with tough abortion laws. But now that more than a dozen states have restricted or banned abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the region has become more of a haven for patients seeking the procedure, and clinics are struggling to keep up. Sarah Fintum has that report. After the High Court issued its ruling in June, Dr. Erin King and her staff at the Hope Clinic in Granite City needed to figure out how to tell people in the waiting room. The thing we hadn't really thought about was just the sheer impact of going back into a waiting room filled with 15 or 20 people from Missouri and saying, so you just came from a state this morning where abortion was, although not accessible, legal, and you are going home to a state today where abortion is completely The clinic's one of two abortion providers in the Metro East, across the river from St. Louis. The region's one of the closest places to get an abortion for those in southern and midwestern states that have banned the procedure. The Hope Clinic expected an increase in patients, but since the ruling, King, its director, says they've been swamped. We're seeing 100% more patients than we were seeing in this time last year. Since that day, abortion clinic workers like Kawana Shannon have kept a close eye on the news. Every month, it seems like, another state is going down, right? Shannon is the patient services manager at Planned Parenthood's clinic in Fairview Heights. She knows every time another state bans abortion, more patients are going to be coming through the clinic's doors. Every time you pick up the phone, I mean, they're coming from all over the United States trying to get access. And the truth of the matter is, Illinois... um, it's one of the easiest places to get your, get your abortions done. Planned Parenthood's Metro East Clinic has also seen a huge increase in patients, especially ones from out of state. Dr. Colleen McNicholas is the medical director for Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and southwest Missouri. We are talking about somewhere between 60 and 80 patients on the schedule every single day who are potentially coming through these doors for abortion care. McNicholas says the clinic has added more workers and hours, but the higher number of patients is putting stress on everyone. You know, it does take an emotional toll to sit with so many people who have so many struggles, who have to try so hard um, to get basic health care and to survive. McNicholas says before the court's decision, people from outside Illinois and Missouri comprised about 4% of the clinic's patient load. That's about 40% now. She says patients have more complications and are further along in gestational age, since they need to travel farther and wait longer to get their abortions. Regional Logistics Center, this is Carolyn. How can I help you? 
To help patients coming to the region, the Hope Clinic and Planned Parenthood use a centralized call center at the Planned Parenthood and Clinic exactly to get as many patients as they can to the Metro East. All day. This is what I do, answer phones and find funds. Carolyn Shirell works in the call center. She sits in front of a slow working computer with multiple tabs open on her browser, booking.com, Google Maps, spreadsheets, and different abortion fund databases. All right. So I was able to secure the funding that you need for your appointment. The National Abortion Federation did provide you with $405. She answers one call after the next from patients across the country, Little Rock, Memphis, and of course, Missouri. All right, good deal. Verify that date of birth one more time. That database was moving pretty slow. Some are stoic. Others cry with relief. Every caller needs financial help. Many aren't name? insured at all. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Well, she was relieved. Mm-hmm. And people cry a lot? Oh, yeah, all the time. It's a sense of relief. In the next few months, the two clinics could see some kind of relief. Another clinic just opened two hours south in Carbondale, and Planned Parenthood says it will begin operating an RV abortion clinic that can drive to different parts of Illinois. As long as states keep banning abortions, patients will keep coming to the Metro East, and clinic staffers say they'll keep on working to bring them here. I'm Sarah Fenton, St. Louis Public Radio. Meanwhile, more than half of Illinois voters say abortion should remain legal here. That's according to a new WBEZ Chicago Sun-Times poll. The survey results come just weeks before the November 8th general election, and as organizations for and against abortion urge people to get to the polls. Kristen Schorsch has more. You've probably heard a lot about abortion in campaign ads this election season. It's a divisive issue. Did you know that J.B. Pritzker and his state Democrats voted to eliminate all restrictions on abortion. We spoke to many, many doctors and decided that the best option for us was an abortion. Darren Bailey thinks that that should have been his decision, not mine. Illinois has long been an oasis in the Midwest for people seeking abortions. And since Roe v. Wade fell in June and many states further restricted access, Illinois became a national destination. The new WBEZ Chicago Sun-Times poll shows about 52 percent of likely voters say abortion should remain legal in most or all cases. That includes Angela Lee. She's 57 and lives in South Suburban Madison. She was given a list of nearly a dozen issues, gun rights, crime, the economy, and chose abortion as the most important to her. I looked at them all, and the only thing that really hit me in my heart was the abortion issue because it is personal. Lee says her perspective is shaped by her lived experience. She questions the lack of resources for people who are forced to have babies. And Lee suffered a miscarriage that required a procedure, also used during abortion, so she didn't bleed out. And that was a planned pregnancy. Um, But if you take this procedure off the table, what's going to happen? To me, it's an attack on us. It's an attack on women. Only 10% of respondents in the poll said abortion in Illinois should be illegal in all cases. Another 26% said abortion should be illegal in most cases. Heading into the election, Elaine Kamark with the Brookings Institution sees signs that the overturning of Roe v. Wade could galvanize people to register to vote. Issues of reproductive health are always present, for women in particular, she said. We talk about this to strangers. We talk about our, you know, our pregnancies and our labor on the train with, with some nice lady we met going into town. I mean, this is, this is a constant topic throughout our lives. 
Kmark says this isn't just driving people who support abortion rights to the polls. She thinks some swing voters, or even anti-abortion voters, may be concerned that restrictions around the country are too strict, and in some cases, dangerous. In Illinois, anti-abortion groups say they're educating voters about what's at stake, which in their view is the state's extreme abortion laws. Eric Scheidler is with Pro-Life Action League. He says he doesn't see this election changing Illinois laws on abortion, but he's hoping some wins in the state legislature may make a difference down the road. Even though the prospects are grim in Illinois, we're still fighting on as hard as we ever have. And, uh, but it's more of a long-term kind of a goal here to p pick off a couple of seats in the General Assembly, make it slightly more pro-life. But anti-abortion groups are being outspent and say they're hitting a ceiling of sorts. People who are be most motivated to go do a thing like register to vote already are registered. Instead, these groups are focusing on making sure their supporters actually go out and vote. Perhaps the biggest battleground for both sides of the abortion issue is the Illinois Supreme Court, now controlled by Democrats. Republicans hope to gain the majority on the court for the first time in more than 50 years. And that could chip away at how protected abortion is in this state in the years to come. I'm Kristen Schorsch. Even as some attempt to spread misinformation and disinformation about election security, two county election clerks, when asked if the 2020 presidential election was stolen, said they could only speak to the integrity of how votes were cast and tabulated in their own counties. The clerks were part of a demonstration of voting machines and a public Q&A session at Bloomington's Eastland Mall, an early voting site. Colleen Reynolds asked the Republican McLean County clerk, Kathy Michael, about why she and other clerks are doing sessions like that one at the mall. With all the disinformation and misinformation still out there, you know, and I don't think that's ever going to go away in our climate. And we happen to have tech training today, too, uh, with all of our equipment, of course, out here at the mall, great location for early voting. And I said, I'm going to put out a, the word and press releases and everything else that we'll go ahead and have an open session for the public and invite the press and anybody that wants to come out here for the reason of transparency and that we're always going to be here for people and why not start right now and that's why we had it today and we're going to continue as often as we can. We might not be able to get another one in for this election but I think it's a pattern that all of us should get into to let everybody know to get the word out that your election authority is keep watching us for sure but we're here for you and we're transparent. It's when we're not transparent that's when you really need to start worrying, but never give up on keeping us on our toes as well, and we'll be here for you. I know that some of the other county clerks talked about the influx of freedom of information requests and nasty letters, and so I'm wondering, what has your office received? Well, we're inundated with FOIAs more so than usual, and we just turn those over to our attorney if we can't answer them immediately, and you know, they fall within the realm of answering you answer FOIAs. I mean, it's the law. Uh, what but, kind of questions? Uh, many going back to wanting information on the 2020 election results. I would say the majority are, of those are. When they're asking about the 2020 election, are they talking about process of vote counting or what just exactly what are they questioning? It's just pretty much asking for uh, the vote totals, they might ask who the election judges were, uh, which is public information, um, and things like that. They're all of these so far, in my opinion, are 
legal information that people can ask, but pretty much focused on the 2020 election. Not 100% of them. We get various other FOIAs uh, checking on what equipment we use and you know how we verify this and that. And uh, we answer every one of them that we're le legally responsible to answer. Do you think the 2020 election was stolen? Well, I'll comment on McLean County elections because that's my expertise. Uh, I know that uh, I can't answer for every county or every state or the country. I know that in 2020, ours were honest and run ethically and uh, honestly and proven by our vote totals and by the State Board of Elections results. I think I asked your colleagues the same question and got something along the same lines. Do you see how that answer could sow seeds of doubt in any voter's mind? My answer? No, I do not, because I answered it honestly about McLean County, and I'll continue to offer all the McLean County evidence and vote totals, just like all the FOIAs that we get. We are happy to, to answer all of those honestly, and that's what the voters expect. And we get a great response from, you know, our election judges and voters here. We get questions, and uh, I haven't gotten any mean, hateful letters uh, that, I, that I can remember. Um, but a lot of, of clouds back there. Are you sure you're doing it this way and, uh, uh, and that way? And what we do is just continue to answer honestly. And I think our reception to our honest answers and being accessible has been really well received. We're talking with Buckling County Clerk Kathy Michael about the election process. And there was a demonstration of the voting machines at Eastland Mall. I noticed that most of the people in the room we're election judges. Are you reaching the audience you need to? Uh, not as many from the public that we had. I, it's not like I hoped for, but some of the most of the election judges too are members of the public, obviously, and we're happy to come. And I'm so glad they did. We had such great questions, and we're going to continue to do this. And this was just the first start, and I, I thought it was a great turnout and a great first start. What are the top questions that you get about elections and election security? The disinformation, that's what we battle all the time when something out there spreads throughout the country as real. How do you counter that? And uh, as the uh, gentleman that attended today from Tazewell County and, and uh, Champaign County mentioned as well, that's why we're doing these things. We're going to answer. We're going to be available. I don't know how much more we can do, but keep telling us how much more we can do uh, to counter disinformation. And the people that spread these things, that some of them, might think they're trying to help. You know, a lot of folks uh, that I know that come with things that aren't true, but once I tell them that and they understand, just like our demonstrations today, um, they will understand that and help spread the word. Some people uh, are just not going to buy it. And at some point, you can't convince people, certain people, on all sides of the spectrum. But that's life, isn't it? Drop boxes, do you get a lot of questions about that? Not as many as when they first came out. It got a lot of negative uh, responses, again, with disinformation. And quite honestly, I'm uneasy with drop boxes. I'm not going to set any out on the street overnight. And we have very few drop boxes. We're legally mandated. And they're actually quite popular, especially the one in Normal at the police department. And uh, I had one complaint about that, saying that was a little intimidating, but I only had one complaint out of 60,000 voters. Everyone else is finding it very popular. I think they feel secure with that. The one in our office, they can just drop it off. A lot of people say, oh, I love not having to mail it. I'm downtown anyway. And so it's become popular in that regard. We don't leave any ballots overnight. 
They're collected daily, sometimes two or three times a day. Um, it's been convenient for a lot of people. We lo I look at it. How far do we keep going with convenience? I, I want to be really careful to make it convenient for the voter um, without risking their ballot or anything like that. For this current election, are you seeing an increase in vote by mail and Dropbox? Dropbox, I can't really tell, except they are starting to gather every day. So everybody's using them every day. So I'd say it's steady. It's still kind of a new process as people find out about Dropboxes. The vote by mail, I'd have to get the numbers. We post them every day. They seem to me we, we're getting now six or 700 back a day. So with the vote by mail ballots as they come in, how are those processed? Yes, we have a Republican and a Democratic judge there at all times to uh, observe that. We open the envelope, and then inside that envelope is the other envelope with the ballot in it with the signature. And that's the signature that we check. If it doesn't match, we have a separate Republican and Democrats called the resolution team. They start working on those ballots that have a question, go through them very carefully, try so hard to verify and reach that voter. And then that vote, it's not counted it's run until election night. It's uh, run through a machine just to store it securely. No one knows who they voted for. Uh, again, we don't know that somebody's ahead of somebody else until election night when those are actually counted. That's McLean County Clerk Kathy Michael. She spoke with Colleen Reynolds. Coming up, we'll preview the race for the U.S. Senate in Illinois. This is statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, the Democrat Tammy Duckworth is seeking a second term representing Illinois in the U.S. Senate, but she'll first have to overcome her underfunded Republican challenger Kathy Salvey in the November election. Democrats are fighting to keep control of the Senate, and they're banking on Duckworth to win re-election in heavily blue Illinois. Dan Milopoulos has more details. It's a Saturday just a few weeks before next month's election, and Democratic Party activists have packed a hotel ballroom in Northbrook for the local party organization luncheon. The biggest names in Cook County and state politics are almost all here, but Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker happily yields the mic. It is now my great pleasure to introduce to you your keynote speaker, a genuine war hero, a fighter, for reproductive rights, and our great United States Senator, Senator Tammy Duckworth. Duckworth gets a standing ovation as she rolls her wheelchair up a ramp to the podium. It's been six years since the Iraq War veteran unseated Republican Mark Kirk. She became the second Asian woman in the Senate, the second woman to represent Illinois in the Senate, and the Senate's first double amputee. Duckworth then became the first senator to give birth while in office. She says the stakes are high next month. The future of this country, the future of the world, depends on us, on Democrats controlling the Senate, Democrats controlling the House, we maintaining our leadership in the Illinois legislature, because it all ties together. Standing in the way of a second term is Republican lawyer Kathy Salvey from Mundelein, she got 30% in a seven-way primary in June. And I would love to see Illinois be a state where people are proud to live in. And the only thing holding us back in the state is poor single-party government. And it's hurting, it's crushing us here. At a debate organized by Illinois editors, 
Salvi said Duckworth is letting President Joe Biden implement a, quote, socialist, leftist agenda. Inflation is at a 40-year high, and it's because the failed leadership of this president and the rubber stamp of his agenda by our junior senator, Tammy Duckworth. But this is a state where Biden beat then-President Donald Trump by a million votes, so Duckworth is only too happy to point out the vast differences with Salvi on big issues including gun control and abortion. On guns, Duckworth cited her military experience, losing both legs when her helicopter was shot down in Iraq in 2004. I carried an M16 for 23 years in the military. I know what those weapons are supposed to do. They're supposed to shred a human body. They don't belong on the streets of our cities. After the deadly massacre at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Duckworth again called for a federal assault weapons ban. But Salvi said she opposes that and drew a much different conclusion after the 4th of July. I would believe that what we have in our in our state, in our country, is a mental health crisis. Uh, it, it, is, it was glaringly evident in that day. She dismissed the incumbent's call for gun control as political grandstanding. And I remind Senator Duckworth of her words right after that tragic event. In fact, I was really taken aback. I just find it repulsive when uh, elected officials use a time of tragedy in order to push a particular uh, 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 political agenda. On abortion, Duckworth favors a federal law protecting the right of a woman to have access to the procedure, but Selvi says she's, quote, pro-life. Libertarian Bill Radpath is also on the ballot. I'm Dan Mihalopoulos. A lot of companies are looking to increase diversity in their ranks. Pamela McElveen is the CEO and founder of Chicago-based P&L Group Limited, which includes Diversity MBA Media. She's worked with large and mid-sized companies for a quarter of a century on expanding diversity in the workforce and recently hosted a national conference on boosting the hiring of multicultural executives. She recently spoke with our reporter, Maureen McKinney, about how diversity in executive offices can be achieved and why that's important. What is the state of women and minority hiring? And I'm especially interested in Illinois, but I'd like to know about the nation too. So when you look at Illinois, and, and Chicago happens to be one of the, the fifth largest uh, locations for uh, people of color to be hired, the hiring opportunities for sourcing talent is better than other states where you have headquarters in, um, you know, like if you look at Iowa or, or Montana, states where that are headquartered where they're predominantly white populations, less than 6% minority populations, you're going to see you know, fewer people of color hired. So when you talk about, you know, how are we doing in Illinois? Well, when you, depending on the industry, some industries are doing very well. Consumer services, retail, manufacturing is not so, not so much um, that because of the union requirements. Overall, multicultural hiring of people of color, um, Illinois is in the top 10 from that perspective. 
When you look nationally, how are we doing? Organizations have opportunities because of the remote environment to go out and be more creative than they ever have been before. And they are doing that. So they're allowing people to work from home and to commute into offices once or twice a week, which is creating the flexibility that's allowing them to hire the kind of talent that they want. But the state of the hiring, I will say it's flat. And the reason I'm, I'm gonna say that is because we do have natural attrition. So we have people that are retiring and we also have people that are choosing, particularly women, to leave the workforce. But when you look at it in terms of niche and very specific areas, you'll see some growth. Nielsen basically did a study. They looked at the 25 uh, cities for the best places to hire multicultural talent, people of color. And Chicago is one of the top cities. So that means that the population here in Illinois, outside of rural Illinois, the city of Chicago and the metropolitan area, basically has a higher population density of people of color and, and women. So it gives our companies the opportunity to have more talent of color. So the population allows itself to have more people interviewing. But what's different today is that companies that are headquartered here in Illinois and if they're sourcing uh, particular talent and have a remote workforce, they can now look nationally. They can, they can go broader. So, but in, in Illinois, while they still have the opportunities to hire more people of color, it doesn't mean that we still don't have the same issues that we have with having the talent available for technical jobs, um, still have the, the, need, you know, the need for engineers, still have the need for key financial roles and still looking you know, for talent and management. So even though we have the density of population, we don't necessarily have all the ready talent for the positions. What might help that? Companies are actually being a little more innovative in investing in the pipelines. So while we don't have specifically, um, for example, HBCUs, we do have Chicago State, we do have uh, Northeastern, and we have other universities that have larger populations of students of color. Companies are investing in the infrastructure of these schools to help build out the pipeline. VF Corporation, they're not headquartered here in Illinois, but for example, they created a fashion institute that, that they invested millions. Diageo, which has a large presence here in, um, in Illinois, have invested in training um, for, for their marketing and for their, their bartending um, certifications and programs. We have insurance companies that are created apprentice programs. So HCSC, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, Healthcare Service Corporation, which is also in five states, they've invested also significantly in the community to build the talent pipeline that they need. And I will tell you, that is really where the gap exists. Companies have to invest to build out the, the pipeline of talent. McDonald's also headquartered here has you know, made a commitment to also go into the underserved populations and build out not just franchising, but hiring you know, 100,000 students and hiring older population into positions that they created for management roles in their, in their franchise operations. So I will you know, give that to companies that they are trying to create different ways to try to help 
uh, source talent and create pipelines. And we have to, we have to create those pipelines because otherwise they're non-existent. Can you tell me about how it benefits society to have a more diverse workforce? When you think about who makes up society, um, it's all types of people. We talk about the dimensions of diversity, which not only uh, speaks to ethnicity, you know, and identity, but it, it speaks to you know cognitive diversity, bringing culture in, how you think, your experiences, and so and and then with multicultural experiences being in the households. So where organizations can mirror what's truly happening in the community and where they're gonna allow a place and a space for folks in their workplace to bring their innovative ideas and to bring their learnings to work. That is That has already been proven, not just in our Dow indexes and showing what profits are, how profitable diverse companies are, but it's already been proven in the workplace when you bring different generations and different cultures together, how they're able to influence and create, you know, ideate, you know, for change, for new products, for new ways to work, to get things done. So it's an ever-changing, ever-innovating um, process to bring people of differences together to create something new and change. Why is it important to have more women in executive positions? The reason to have more women in these executive positions, we know that women in leadership roles, actually regardless of ethnicity, have a broader lens just inherently based on how they think, how we think, based on our experiences as more comprehensive in bringing more groups together of building more teams, managing conflict more effectively, healthy conflict more effectively, and then creating outcomes through mentoring, um, providing sponsorship. They help actually create the pipeline to advance women. You know, and women are more intentional and they know what needs to be done. It's really a learning process, not to say the men that are driving these, um, these seats don't care about it, but women help them create the roadmap and navigate it and get it done. And so having them have a seat at the table, both women and women of color having a seat at the table broadens the lens and accelerates the process to have more of an inclusive uh, culture and, and uh, organization. And the numbers have shown it. The numbers have proven that when you, um, the biggest brands, when you think about Pepsi that's headquartered here, these biggest brands that have bought together teams of, um, of uh, diversity has improved their process and, and reflects what the consumers want. We're still celebrating. You know, you think of Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson, we're still celebrating the first in, um, in, these, in these major roles, you know, which is incredible. Um, to be able to still see the first. But I will tell you right now, we have like 32 women that are CEOs of public companies. And so it's showing some progress, right? It's still slow, but nonetheless, it's progress. When you talk about what our, you know, what's happening in the population around equity and, and where companies are, how they're looking at equity in the organizations where they never looked at it before. They are, they are really 
taking deeper dives and taking equity more serious as they look at women um, and people of color in management roles. So equity, you know, as it relates to pay, equity as it relates to opportunities and advancement. And I'm trying to be very specific and different from discrimination, but just things that have inherently happened in the workforce where organizations are trying to pay attention and get ahead of. Um, so, so that's one of the things that I think that's a good news story where organizations are looking at equity holistically. I think also the fact that companies are being more open to creating non-traditional jobs and non-traditional ways for, for women um, to be able to, to achieve high performance type of careers while working from home. That was something you know that we didn't really give an opportunity to before, but they are allowing to do that. And, and so the heightened awareness is still there. I mean, it's still a journey but the companies are more sensitive to what's happening in the community than they have ever been before. So that's the good news. And they're allowing um, open conversations on, on race and sexism and stereotypes and the tough subjects that we never had talked about before. They are creating space for those types of conversations and change. That's CEO and diversity expert Pamela McElveen in an interview with Maureen McKinney. Conventional wisdom tells us the traditional location of the first European public building in Illinois was somewhere in the Peoria area, but a new look at the French explorer Robert de La Salle's letters suggests the remains of Fort Creve Corps may actually be considerably farther south down the Illinois River, Tim Shelley reports. Your definition of the length of a French league may determine where on the map you place La Salle's mysterious Lake Pimitoui, and by proxy, Fort Creve Coeur. Retired teacher Rich Gross says he went back to the source material. So if we're going to do this, we have to completely abandon everything we've ever read. Francis Parkman, Lewis Hennepin, start all over, and we're going to start with the original accounts. Gross used the first federal survey of the state drawn in 1830 before the Illinois River was altered significantly by human activity to map the probable location of Lake Pimitoui using LaSalle's descriptions and the old French definition of a league, which was about three miles. He says he tried to get the map to match up the Creve Corps, Illinois, but... I couldn't. All I could prove was Beardstown. Beardstown, Beardstown, Beardstown. Beardstown is about 78 miles southwest of Creve Corps. Gross admits he's taken some flack from people who accuse him of revisionist history, but he maintains the truth is right there in the primary documents. I'm telling the story closer to the truth than anybody has before. And the thing that I have is I know the documents and I can support every statement I make with historical documents. Gross recently published a paper on the topic in the Journal of the Illinois State Historical Society. I'm Tim Shelley. Just ahead, a new biography on Abraham Lincoln. That and more coming up on Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. There's a new biography of Abraham Lincoln. This one doesn't simply look at what Lincoln did, but why he did it. And NPR's Steve Inskeep had a chance to speak with the author and historian. The historian John Meacham has known a few presidents. He wrote a biography of George H.W. Bush and sometimes writes speeches for Joe Biden. Meacham says many presidents see Abraham Lincoln as a role model. Lincoln was a politician. 
but he was a politician who ultimately was driven by conscience. This is my entire argument. If he had solely been a cynical political creature, he would have made radically different decisions at critical points. Meacham's book, And There Was Light, tells of the anti-slavery politician whose election as president in 1860 triggered the Civil War. Lincoln struck back at the rebel states by ordering freedom for their enslaved workers, the Emancipation Proclamation. But the first Republican president was fiercely criticized by people who wanted less social change. And in 1864, he had to face the voters for re-election. Henry Raymond, the editor of the New York Times and the chairman of the Republican National Committee, comes to the White House. He has said that the tide is setting against us and that if Lincoln wants to win re-election, he must give up emancipation as a precondition for peace. Meacham's book reconstructs that moment. Lincoln's party had done badly in the midterm elections. Lincoln himself even wrote a private note forecasting his own defeat. He was urged to appeal to conservative voters by making some statement that he would back off his continued push for freedom. And Lincoln said no, that he had made his position clear. He was willing to go down politically for that principle. How did Lincoln think through that moment in, say, the summer of 1864? He believed that slavery was wrong. He believed that he was right. He fundamentally understood politics could not simply be about the amassing and keeping of power. It was about the amassing, keeping, and utilization of power. And I think the utility of it for us is that not that he's perfect, but that here's a frail human being who didn't always get everything right, who in that critical hour transcended his limitations, transcended his ambitions, transcended his appetites to do the right thing. And fortunately, it was rewarded by events. But he didn't know that. After refusing to retreat on slavery, Lincoln won the election anyway. And months later, his side won the war. In part, his calculation was ruthlessly practical. Men freed from slavery were joining the Union Army. Meacham argues the decision was also moral. Lincoln spoke of God a lot, although he was never a member of a church. His first inaugural address appealed to the better angels of our nature. And when that failed, his second inaugural address portrayed the war as God's punishment. In the second inaugural, Lincoln says that the Civil War came because of slavery and because slavery was a sin and that God himself seemed to be adjudicating the weight of that sin in real time. So religion was both a rallying cry. It provided a predicate for the North, for the anti-slavery forces, and let us be very clear, and this is resonant today, it also provided a intellectual prop to slave owners who wanted to believe that slavery was divinely ordained. Well, that's part of this speech, too. He acknowledges that both sides believed that God was on their side, but I believe he also suggests they may be both wrong. He says both pray the same God, both ask for victory over the other, the prayers of neither have been fully answered. What is perennially frightening is that 
in American politics, in American culture, people do claim divine sanction for what they want to do. And if you claim divine sanction for what you want to do, that makes compromise very difficult. If you believe you are doing God's work, unless you do it with an immense amount of humility, that becomes a stumbling block within a democratic context in a way that is very, very troubling. At the same time, religion has been one of the great forces for reform and liberty in the country. My view of this, which I think is also the way Lincoln articulated, was that religion is going to be part of the human experience in the same way economics are always a part or geography. And so the question is, how do you manage and marshal religious feeling, not try to remove it? There is a conscience, and you want to do everything you can to be in accord with this universal law of treating others as you would be treated. And that may sound simplistic, but I firmly believe, and I argue in this, that that was Lincoln's moral vision. And it's also, it has the virtue of being a durable political vision. John, I want to anticipate a question I think you're going to get a lot. You're going to go out, you're going to do public events, you're going to do interviews in our current political environment, and you've got this book that dwells on the Civil War. I think people are going to ask you, do you think we're heading for a civil war? Tragically, I think we will see more of civil chaos. I think we're going to see it with violence. I do not believe we're going to see the massing of great armies in the way we did in the 19th century. But we are at greater risk. And part of it is that there is a passionate minority that is putting its own interests ahead of those of the nation. And the nation as defined with that kind of moral sensibility we've discussed. But I'm fundamentally hopeful in this sense that we have stared into the abyss before and just enough of us have decided to do the right thing. And as Lincoln said about our better angels, those better angels won't prevail unless we enlist ourselves in the cause too. John Meacham is the author of And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Statewide. President Joe Biden recently warned Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons pose the biggest threat the world has faced since the Cuban Missile Crisis. That took place 60 years ago this month. President John F. Kennedy faced that crisis in a bipartisan manner just weeks before a heated midterm election. Chris Kergard from the Dirksen Congressional Center in Pekin explains how Kennedy found his off-ramp for nuclear Armageddon and what lessons the story might teach us today. There's a risk that 20 years, less than 20 years after the U.S. is the only nation to, to use atomic weapons in the middle of the arms race, in the middle of the Cold War, that the two major nuclear powers are, are standing eyeball to eyeball. Kennedy is less than willing to accept the advice of his advisors to invade or to bomb because he knows that that escalates what's already a, a difficult crisis and sends everybody down a path to war. How does he come to a decision? Kennedy and, and you know, he's, he's getting advice from the military, from XCOM, from his, his brother Bobby, who's, who's a part of XCOM and, and is 
is also a close advisor to him, and they're having private conversations in there. And ultimately, Kennedy decides to take a still escalatory but less aggressive step to begin a naval blockade of Cuba. There are, are two messages that are received from Khrushchev, one fairly bellicose, banging the, the war drums, the other one a little more conciliatory. And against all of this backdrop, Kennedy also arranges to have Air Force jets sent, transport planes sent to bring back the congressional leadership to Washington. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, he is going to have to tell the country that this is going on. This, this is all, all the way through October 22nd has all been behind the scenes. And of course, when the congressional leadership comes back to Washington, that includes Everett Dirksen from Pekin, who Kennedy was just campaigning against. I, I, exactly. And, and Dirksen has a little bit of fun with that. When he walks into the meeting, he says, you know, well, I, uh, that, that was quite a speech you gave, Mr. President, to come down with a cold this serious. At that point, Kennedy outlines his plan to the, the leadership. Interestingly, he gets a little more pushback from some of the key Democrats in leadership, Richard Russell from, from Georgia, William Fulbright from Arkansas, uh, head of the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. They're kind of pushing invasion along with the Joint Chiefs. And it, it's Dirksen, it's Charlie Halleck from Indiana, the Republican leader, who in, in the middle of the meeting indicate, we're standing with the president on this, and, and that's, that's the conclusion everybody comes around to by the time they leave the meeting, such that when, uh, when they actually get, get out of that meeting, the Republican leaders release a statement, a, a joint statement among the Republican leaders saying that, quote, all Americans will support the president on the decision or decisions he makes for the security of our country. Now imagine that 14 days out from a national election, you have the folks from the other side of the aisle who are saying, we're standing with the president on this. We trust the president. We've seen some of that unanimity in the current Ukraine crisis over the last eight months. But parts of that are beginning to fray a little bit. And, and we're beginning to see more of that concern today over whether post midterm the sides will stay together on supporting the Ukraine. And that's that's really interesting because this this kind of policy you're describing of, you know, the disagreements end when it comes to foreign policy. We all stand behind the president. We're one united front. Uh, I, I don't know when that philosophy started to disintegrate. It seems like that consensus no longer holds. Exactly. It, it's something that, that has has faded over time. And certainly there's there's criticism over pieces of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus that have been less successful. Vietnam is the instance that a lot of people will point to as one where there was broad bipartisan consensus on that for many years. But certainly over the last 30 years, there's there's been much more of a, a fade in that regard. And Ukraine has sort of stepped it back to what it had been for a long time. And it, it's interesting that 60 years after the fact, what's brought us back to some of that bipartisan politics stops at the water's edge on foreign policy is, again, Russian aggression in a sovereign state and how that's all turned out for us today. 
Yeah, and I mean that's that's kind of interesting. So what what can we what can we take from how Dirksen and the other leaders acted back in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and say are there lessons to be learned from that today? Certainly, I would say that the the first lesson that we can learn from that is is the the internal discussion part of that lesson that you know everybody has the meeting and they they weigh their pros and their cons and and they understand the the seriousness of of what they're grappling with they aren't posturing for the television cameras or or for an audience beyond the good of the country and and that's truly what what they were all looking for there is what ends up being best for the country and they were also willing to to rethink their own prejudices or internal gut reactions to something and and keep an open mind about them. And, and we see that not just in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in the next step after the Cuban Missile Crisis as well. Both Kennedy and Khrushchev end up beginning work again on, on what had been stalled for a couple of years, the partial nuclear test ban treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is them realizing how close they came to the brink of nuclear war, trying to step back from that. And uh, as all of this goes along, you, you run into the same kinds of concerns that you had during the Cuban Missile Crisis with members of the military, with some more hawkish people in, in both parties concerned that the United States is potentially giving away an advantage here uh, to the Russians in, in the treaty. And you, you once again have some of that bipartisan consensus come in. Uh, Dirksen talks specifically about keeping an open mind on that treaty, about having private conversations and consultation with the president on that treaty. Dirksen ends up walking away with a, a letter from the president that says, look, this is not going to stop us from doing underground nuclear testing if we want. This is not going to stop us from, if we need to retaliate because we are attacked, from using any of our arsenal. Dirksen is sold on the treaty. He is willing to to rethink his own gut reaction, which was some of those same concerns. Chris Kergard is with the Everett Dirksen Congressional Center, explaining the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the late U.S. Senator's role in averting a nuclear conflict. We're out of time for this week's episode of Statewide. You can find it and all of our past episodes at nprillinois.org. Also, our weekly podcast is available through the NPR One app. And we hope you join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.